Welcome to Householders, a conversation about American life as Zen practice. I'm Inga Annie Wade. And I'm Kyosaku John Mitchell, and we're lay members of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center. I do a lot of like religious research just for fun sure. because I enjoy it. And I learned recently that, you know, historically, from a historical perspective, uh, Moses is more of a legend than a real historical figure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it it does, it, in my head, and I don't know how it is with, uh, you know, Judaism, um, I feel like Jewish people are more open to those kind of things. But in Christianity, like the idea that that Moses might not be a real person and those things might not have happened exactly how it says it is in the Bible is just they they can't really cope with that idea. And I was like, okay, well I'm interested in learning about Buddha and his historical context and of course like their records of 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 Buddha like any uh non-religious records are about like 100 or something years after Buddha, mm-hmm. so it's not like the most accurate thing. Usually you want like a record as close to when the person existed as possible. Uh, anyways, uh, but they still th- tend to think that uh, Buddha was a historical uh, mm-hmm. religious leader uh, that existed. But a lot of the, the stories that were told, the uh, the sutras are probably more uh, on the lines of, of stories and are should be, you know, put more to faith so that's the kind of idea that i've been thinking of lately is uh the role of faith and how much faith is needed for uh zen buddhist practice Mm. how important is it to know for a fact that buddha was a real person that existed and did the things in the stories versus is it okay to think that well, no, these aren't real stories necessarily, but they do serve the the purpose of t- telling, uh, teaching lessons, and um, you know, creating creating a way for people to understand certain ideas. Yeah, I, I, it's a really fascinating topic, even within Zen, in particular. I mean, I'd love to talk about the implications for Judaism and Christianity too. But Zen, Zen, I feel like is actually one of the most interesting cases of this in the whole Buddhist world, because it's not just the historicity of the Buddha that's in question. Bodhidharma is also a similarly apocryphal figure. And there are sort of yeah. conflicting stories about uh, whether, like, I, I feel like I've, I've read that there are actually several people that are kind of being con- concatenated into one figure called Bodhidharma. For people who don't know, Bodhidharma is sort of is the person uh, we consider to be the ancestor of Zen, the person who came from India or came over the mountains from somewhere uh, and brought Zen, the, the the kind of practice that would become Zen into China. Uh, so he's sort of the first patriarch of Zen. But there are, and there are some some interesting physical descriptions of him as having a red beard or being called the barbarian because of just like his physical appearance. So there are some some accounts of him as a person, and there are some really interesting archaeological 
ties to sort of the Silk Road and the connections to like Persia and the Middle East uh, from like to China at that time that make it uh, pretty interesting to consider that like a pilgrim from somewhere else could have come in with like lots of different mixtures of traditions and teachings. Uh, but there are also sort of impossible dates and times and, you know, where, I mean, he's, right. con- he's considered the founder of the Shaolin monastery in China where uh, not only this form of meditation, but also lots of martial arts forms come from. So there's lots mm-hmm. of different traditions kind of leaning on this figure. And I feel like that's how you get this sort of patchwork apocryphal character. Cause like, that's true for Moses too. And certainly for the Buddha also, you know, like if everybody needs a piece of this person to, to sort of give credibility or, um, you know, uh, lineage to their teachings, then they're going to, things are going to get added to who that person is until even if there is a historical person at the bottom somewhere, uh, the person or we multiple. end up with. The, uh, yeah. Like there were many exactly in the case of Bodhidharma, um, you're going to end up with some sort of mashup legend a thousand or 2000 years later. Uh, so yeah, it's a yeah. fascinating, fascinating question about Zen. I mean, the, another thing I want to bring in right at the beginning is sort of the central, one of the central, texts of this is less well known but there's actually some scholarly writing about it that i've read uh one of the central texts that we use in zen is the what is called the heart sutra Uh, and there are a lot of interesting things about the heart sutra not least of which is that it's very short and sort of um you know rhythmic and formulaic in a way that isn't really reminiscent of the other mahayana sutras Right. Like the old there are some there are some old early Buddhist sutras that are clearly meant to be sort of chanted aloud and they're short and they contain sort of one nugget of wisdom. But by the time you get to the Mahayana scriptures that uh, people read in Tibet and in China and Japan uh, and elsewhere in later Buddhism, there are these big, long, crazy stories. Right. Like the Lotus Sutra is like hundreds of pages of legends and conversations and it's like more like reading the bible than it is like reading Mm -hmm. like a chant but the heart sutra is this one weird exception and so it has this provenance that is passed down of it coming from india and so forth Uh, and there are there are versions of it in sanskrit even though we chanted in that sino-japanese transliteration of chinese into japanese that doesn't actually mean anything uh, which is wonderful in its own way uh, but but there have been lots of confusing stories about what it actually means or what it's trying to say. And one really yeah. interesting scholarly account of it that I read made the case that the reason it's so confusing is that it was written in Chinese and back translated into Sanskrit and that there are there are things about it that uh, that don't like line up with a sort of traditional Buddhist account of what it is because it's not actually an Indian teaching that got brought over, but it's something composed in China, uh, kind of for the Zen tradition. And so that's very upsetting to some people. I don't see. It's hard for me to think of that as being upsetting, but it's like when here's the thing, like when I think about Christianity and learning things like that about this, like, for example, uh, I learned recently that the Holy Trinity Mm. is not really a, a biblical concept. It's more of just, uh, they saw some things in the Bible they didn't really understand how this really worked and kind of came up with well they must be all the same thing uh-huh. 
and also different. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I can't really make sense of these other texts. Uh, and then the the line was added, you know, later in in Luke, I believe, that said, you know, the 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 Holy Spirit, Jesus, and and God are all one. Mm. But that wasn't a an original like excerpt from it so it was just like people come together and they're like put it you know trying to piece the bible together there's missing pieces they're like well you know it might say something like this here and i don't think there's anything wrong with that but when it comes to christianity specifically like you have whole like religious movements that have fought against each other over something like that mm -hmm. or that specifically you know yeah. <laughs> that specifically as has been something that the tr what what is it the well the holy trinity anyway that it's a, it's a huge deal mm -hmm. and to put something that's not that's like a translation of the bible it's it's a perception of the bible it's not mm -hmm. the exact wording my question is like we we chant the heart sutra all the time mm -hmm. so i see it as a very important text to buddhists and i get that like well, it's going to be different from the how it was originally intended. Mm -hmm. It has to be. It's been translated so many times. We recite it in English, too. Mm -hmm. Getting to know exactly what that Heart Sutra is, you know, trying to say, yeah, you would probably have to go to the original translation and, and figure out what those words meant. But at the end of the day, how important is that Heart Sutra to the practice? Right. How, how important is it to our idea of 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 zen buddhism and what it is at, at the essence of of what we're doing mm. so the really interesting implication of the research that i read is that there is a misunderstanding about the heart sutra that it is meant to be some sort of metaphysical description of reality you know like the emptiness of everything and like uh mm -hmm. you know no suffering no path no knowledge no attainment like like all of those yeah well and then the whole form is emptiness emptiness is form formulation um those those have been taken historically as philosophical statements as as descriptions of the way the universe is which does make it like a like a sacred text of some kind right like it's like a scripture that describes reality mm -hmm. and so if that was you know, quote unquote, made up in China, uh, that's very upsetting to people because that means it's not authentic Buddhism or something. But the thing that this scholar found is that if you it, like the, the the idiom that he used to identify in the that that the, the Sanskrit version is a translation from Chinese rather than vice versa is that there are some, and I don't remember exactly what the grammar is, but the the implication, and I can I can actually put a link to this article in the show notes so people can read it because it was in Tricycle Magazine or something like that. Um, the implication is that this isn't supposed to be taken as a sutra the way that things that we call sutra uh, typically are, of like being a sacred text of the Buddha's teachings that describe the universe as the way it is. It's meant to be understood as practice instructions. So when your your question of like how important is it to our practice like take it or leave it the like it, it's it's uh, the the truth it's see if this account is to be believed and I do believe it the truth is that this, the Heart Sutra is just another one of those short poems about zazen like the ones that we read in mm -hmm. from Chinese and Japanese that's just like a, a a particular account of what happens when you're 
deep in meditation practice. So it's not saying this is the way the universe is and you have to do Buddhism to find out. It's sit and deeply practice the, you know, perfection of wisdom and you will experience the fact that form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And that's just what happens in your reality when you do this practice. So the Heart Sutra is a nice formulation of that, but it's not the only one we have. And we come up with our own original ones all the time. So it makes sense as a thing to chant, you know what I mean? But it's not like some mm-hmm. form of doctrine that you have to hold on to. But for people who do consider it to be that, the idea that the Buddha didn't teach this is really upsetting. And fortunately for us in Zen, we have founding teachings like from attributed to Bodhidharma, which who, who may or may not have been a real person, but these teachings came from somewhere that say that this is a transmission beyond words and letters. So like the things in the scripture, scriptures aren't the fundamental truth, the experiences. And that is something that the Buddha said. That is that is really interesting that you you say that people, you know, would be upset to to find out that we're not really sure if Bodhidharma was one singular real person uh-huh. and if we can really attribute a lot of the things to him. And there there are really weird stories about him. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this has to be metaphorical. You know, like the one where he like wanted to keep his eyes open and then cut off his eyelids <laughs> yeah. and then he turned into tea leaves. Yeah, he invented like, tea. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, that probably didn't happen. Yeah, I, I would just say right now. Yeah. That, that's probably not true. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So um, I think you're right that there is uh, about Zen does have this sort of lineage uh, that is very important to people. I don't know how important it is to me as a Mm -hmm. singular practitioner, because I I think that, yeah, you want to be following the doctrine. You want to be like doing the right thing i do think and at the end of the day there are multiple ways to get to the same place mm-hmm. you know we have different different versions of, of buddhism that i think are all valid and i do think that um, even practices that are not meditation and are not buddhism can get you to the same place mm-hmm. so i think that if if buddhism changes over time and it does and we have less and less maybe connection to the doctrinal um, philosophies of, of old um, I I just tend to think that I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing mm-hmm. um, that we like I don't think just because something's old means it's better or or that they knew something that we didn't Um I think if you practice this, then you should know it too, um, eventually. Mm-hmm. Maybe not right away. Yeah. <laughs> and so, if if Sensei, for example, is you know passed on and he's he's gone through the trouble of of being a disciplined uh, student and 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 studied zazen for a long time and 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 meditated, then he should know that he should know it just as well as the old masters did. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a, there's like a bottom line in Buddhism, which is find out for yourself, right? And that is what mm-hmm. every Zen teacher says, but it is also what the Buddha says. Like, I don't I don't think that you could find any tradition in all of Buddhism that would overlook the places where the Buddha is recorded as saying 
this the truth of this practice is in your own experience of doing this practice, not in the words that I'm saying. You know, there are so many classical sources where that's the case. And so even though there are lots of sutras that are transmitted and revered as the Buddha explaining reality to people, that's something that the Buddha is doing provisionally in his own words. And what he's saying is you can't understand this just by listening to me speak. You have to Mm -hmm. go see. And so I feel like there is an implication of that that stands the test of time, which is that you will have your own awakening to the truth and it will be the truth from your own point of view. And that's the thing that matters. So that's how you end up in a situation like we're in today where like the Dalai Lama, if he can be taken as sort of a representative of like the state of play in Vajrayana Buddhism as a whole, says like if science finds something out about meditation that contradicts something in Buddhism, we should follow science and not the sutras, right? And and that's yeah. that's you know, he's got a lot of subtle agendas in saying something like that because he's also a figure who is sort of has sort of competition with like other religious leaders in Tibetan Buddhism who don't say that, who say like the sutras are the truth and, you know, we shouldn't westernize or modernize Buddhism or whatever. Like he's got a political reason to say the thing that he's saying, but he's not saying that something that is that he's not saying something that's at odds with the teachings of Buddhism. It would be very hard to make the case that he was. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, and I mean, I certainly don't want to be uh, the type of religious person that is arguing against science when they have clear facts to prove that I am wrong and just misrepresent their arguments so that I can continue to believe something that at the end of the day isn't really all that important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's certainly not the language of our own tradition uh, to, to make that kind of separation between science and the Dharma or something like that. You know, it's, it's, I mean, you know, sensei is a, particularly like contemporary teacher in his way of teaching, you know, he's using science all the time. And there are other lineages of Zen in America that, that are more um, limited in their vocabulary to like stuff that's in Dogen or stuff that's in Zen teachings. But, but that, but it's, it's just a aesthetic choice to me. It's, it's like no, no one, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. I feel like to make the case that, um, Zen is a, is a, one of those religions, you know, where like there are faith claims that you have to hold on to regardless of what the evidence in front of your eyes says. And cause that would be completely at odds with what the practice is telling us to do but i I mean i do think there is one faith that you do have to have Mm. you have to have the faith that sitting in zazen is gonna you know do the things that it's gonna do yeah um and yeah science like we said can prove a lot of the things but we're talking about in zazen and zen we're 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 in the in the text it says things that i don't really think you could like prove with science necessarily mm-hmm. 
it's not something that we could be like, oh yeah, when they say this, they're they're actually experiencing this one chemical that yeah. that's firing, and I I don't think you can because it's just it, it is something that goes beyond words, and I think that's where the faith comes in. Mm-hmm. I think that's true, and I think that that is faith. I think that you're right to use that word, but I feel like it's very carefully circumscribed in Zen teachings to the right place. And lots of liberal religious movements, like in Judaism, for example, and surely from Christianity too, will also sort of keep faith limited to that sort of like heart place where you believe in what you're doing and not mm-hmm. make it into some kind of metaphysical claim about the universe. But it's it's very hard to keep that in check for religions that have sort of more of a creation story, I guess, or like a creation story. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the, 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 like to look at Dogen specifically in terms of faith, I feel like the, the, the method Dogen describes is actually very scientific that it's, it's that you have to have faith. It's like having faith in the scientific method. In other words, like scientists have to have faith too. They have to have faith that the experimental process of, uh, te- of coming up with hypotheses and testing them and then updating your theories based on the findings isn't going to like, you know, the, the, the earth isn't going to just fly out of orbit tomorrow or like gravity isn't going to flip upside down. You know, like you have to have a kind of faith in that too, but it's a faith that's confirmed by evidence and experimentation. It's just faith in the process. It's not faith in the sort of ground truth. And I think that that that's exactly what Dogen says about practice, that that's exactly what Zen teaches about practice is like, yeah, you have to have faith that it's a good idea to sit down and observe for yourself, but you sit down and observe for yourself and it works. Working is something that you experience in real time. It's not, it's, it's, this is exactly what these teachings about like, don't grasp for enlightenment or practice in order to get something. That's what that's all. That's what that all means. Right? Like the, the, attachment to an outcome from Zazen is something that we warn against very explicitly. And, you know, like the famous uh, teaching in the, in the Uchiyama or, you know, Kodosawaki lineage uh, that Zazen is good for nothing. Like what, Mm -hmm. what that means, what that means is don't have faith in something that isn't observable to you about Zazen, have faith in Zazen, as a good thing in itself. And I, I, f- I feel like that's actually a scientific approach. I feel like it's actually the approach that scientists have to use. Cause if you're a scientist, you have to believe that, <clears throat> that, that, you know, you're not gonna like spontaneously violate the law of physics by getting out of bed in the morning, but it's not the same kind of faith. It's a faith that the things that you've experienced are going to uh, like remain consistent over time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's true. I, I think the whole like, well, don't go in it trying to gain something mm-hmm. does kind of throw the whole, my whole faith argument for a loop a little bit. Mm. Um, because, you know, on one hand, I think something like Nirvana in, involves faith. Sure. Um, but since we're not trying to reach Nirvana, we don't have to have faith that it really exists mm-hmm. because it's not our goal. Right. We just talk about it as something 
what what we're having faith, what we are really having faith in when we talk about that is that the Buddha experienced something that we want to learn from. And really, you can have a religious version of that belief of just like, oh, the Buddha was a divine being and, and, you know, we follow what the Buddha did because the Buddha was a divine being. But you can also have a more scientific relationship to that idea of looking at the Buddha's teachings and going, well, this seems good. Like following, following his prescriptions seems to help me. So I have yeah. reason to provisionally believe that his descriptions of reality are accurate. And so my faith, the faith then is really in the Buddha's own scientific experimentation. If you like somehow science came and they're like, we have scientifically proven, which I don't think that could possibly be done, but we have scientifically proven that uh, you cannot reach nirvana. <laughs> I mean, what a weird statement yeah. that would be. But <laughs> just suspend your disbelief for a little bit. Yeah. Would that would that cause you to feel differently about uh, Zen Buddhism? Mm. Would it cause me to feel differently? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I we can only speak for ourselves here. So. I mean, I don't I don't really think of Nirvana as um, real. <laughs> anyway you know yeah. like like it's it's not that's not to say i don't i mean like the there are we're getting into weird territory here because of a phrase in english that causes me no end of trouble which is to mm -hmm. believe in something like what does it mean to believe in something to believe in god yeah. or to believe in enlightenment or what you know whatever sort of faith principle we're talking about like i don't actually really consider that to be like my own cultural concept believing in like that's not what faith means in Judaism so I've so I've sort of I, I inherited that phrase believe in to or to believe in God from just sort of the language around me but as I've investigated it and my own experience I've never really found it to point to anything like I don't actually believe in things <laughs> that way you know like and i don't know i don't know how to explain it any better than that it's just like it's not necessary for me to i guess to believe in something means to place my confidence in the truth of this thing i can't directly experience but i mm -hmm. i like accept is there anyway yeah I, th I think people maybe christian people people for whom believing in a thing is really important talk about it as something that you need in order to live your life. Like how, how can you yeah. get out of bed in the morning without it? Like I've never needed that and I've never believed in anything and I still get out of bed in the morning, you know, or like if I, if I, if I had to say like, what do I believe in that gets me out of bed in the morning? It's something more like, I believe that the people in my life exist in a way that I that is entangled with me that like I need to get up and be with them and like live life with them and take care of them. Like there's plenty of things in the world that I would say I believe in that are enough for me to get out of bed in the morning and go take care of. So Nirvana has never been something like that for me 
as long as I've been into Buddhism. It's just been a thing that I have heard teachings about that feels deserved by people who do follow the practices and precepts of Buddhism in such a way that they have clearly done good for the world. You know, like I want Mm -hmm. enlightenment for other people, for specific other people. And that seems to me to be consistent with Mahayana Buddhism, you know, like Bodhisattva values are, you don't get enlightened until, until everyone is enlightened. And so, you know, it's, if, if it's a thing that sounds nice that I wish for other people to have, like that's good enough for me. So if scientists proved that you couldn't get enlightened, um, you know, that would clearly change Buddhism, but I'm not sure that it would make me do anything differently. Right. I don't, I mean, I don't think it would make me do anything differently either. Um, I don't think there's necessarily a consensus of what being enlightened means to begin with. So it would be a hard thing to prove or disprove. Yeah. Um, but for me, I do think that people can reach temporarily temporary enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't really think of it as this thing where you did it, you did the thing and now you're forever enlightened. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think that it is something that happens along with practice and sometimes just strange life circumstances and it'll, it'll, it'll be there for a time and then it'll go away and um, maybe it'll come back sometime. I don't know. I couldn't tell you, mm-hmm. but I do, I do think that with sustained practice, you could reach a type of enlightenment that lasts longer. That's more, mm-hmm. um, you know, consistent and it might not be exactly as strong as those temporary times that, you know, people have have reached this certain state, but it will help you do good for this world. And I do think I've seen that in people more than I've seen this like a mystical state that that uh, that lasts for a long time, some sort of sainthood, some sort of, mm. you know, experience. But I, I, I think that's that. You can get to a point where you have so much compassion and so much empathy and so so much um, feeling for the world and other interconnectedness of people that you can do a lot of good mm-hmm. for the people around you. And just to sort of wrap that back up into your initial inquiry those all sound like things you went out and found for yourself to be, or at least seem like the case, right? Like you're, you're not quoting anybody here. No, I'm not. I, this is just like what I see, like what I hear, like read about a person and they, they turn out to be from other people's perspective, just as good as they sound. I think they've probably reached some sort of sustained, enlightenment that might not be what we're talking about when we're saying enlightenment but is equally as important Mm -hmm. 
And so like that looks enough like Zen Buddhism to you to kind of merge your own version of what you're describing with this set of things that we as a Sangha, for instance, say and do and talk about and practice. Uh, and it's not really relying on the authority of Zen as the thing that transmitted that truth to you. Right. So like if we find out that tomorrow that Zen Buddhism was invented in 1932, uh, <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't throw you for a loop. I think it would I would be like, well, that's weird. Yeah, yeah but sure. It would throw I, you for a loop for a minute. <laughs> but I, I don't think it would prevent me from going back to, um, you know, the Sangha. I think what would prevent me would be have to be some sort of like um really really big scandal mm, kind of mm -hmm. like the catholic church with the pedophiles that would probably break my faith a little bit yeah. i would say that yeah. like i don't i'd be like well what what about these practices at least it would it would make me question a lot of things sure you know it's like with christian with with catholicism like well what's going on there why is this happening it's not, this isn't a good system or something's going wrong if this is happening. So mm -hmm. we need to go back and, you know, think about what could be changed here to make this not happen anymore. And I think mm -hmm. the same thing would have to be done to Zen if mm -hmm. anything like that ever happened. And yeah, I think that would shake me a little bit. Um, but I don't think there would be any correlation between sitting Zazen and pedophilia or something like that. So yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it would have to be the people, the the priests or the, you know, the practitioners. Right. It's the people. Get You could get rid of all of those people and everything they'd ever said, and it wouldn't change anything about what was true. Householders is a production of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Silent Thunder Order. Find us on the web at ASZC.org. Our Sangha depends on your support. You can donate by PayPal to donate at storder.org. Gashaw.